how the teachings we've worked with over <clears throat> over all this time, but certainly uh, just to condense it down to recent weeks, uh, have direct bearing on what's happening in the world right now. When when uh, when Buddhism teaches about interdependence, it really does signify that the events that happen out there, we're all connected to. They impact in each and every, each and every one of us. And my talk last week about the uh, the awesome presence or the dignified behavior of active Buddhas. Uh, to be in this practice is to be active. And to be active is, is an emanation of our interdependence. So, and it's particularly important this morning, I think, as we're going to be looking at poetry uh, by one who, who, who largely practiced as a hermit. And that's valuable practice too. But for those of us whose lives are in the middle of the world, uh, you know, we, we need to, to be able to respond. So Crooked River Zen Center, uh, you know, as its guiding teacher, I, I certainly uh, just want to share with you that my intent is to make sure that uh, over the coming weeks that, uh, that I make it clear how these teachings have bearing on uh, the events around us, and that injustice impacts our entire environment in its broadest sense. Not only ecological issues, but obviously, as, as David Lloyd points out, social issues, economic issues, they're all intertwined. So once we started working with eco-dharma, we were already deep into all of these. So as these significant events occur, uh, it's, it's, it's essential and very appropriate that we, uh, we uh, pay attention to them, include them in, in our talks and discussions, uh, but for me, as I've been looking at Stonehouse over the past couple of days in anticipation of, of what Keith was going to be sharing with us this morning, you know, the great value of teachings like this is it really does point to this, this awesome presence that when we can enter into these still points, these quiet places, find some serenity, which is a need that we all have, that when we can do that, it really 
helps to, to energize, to fuel our activity in the world of active Buddhists. So I've, I find, you know, the poetry of Stonehouse uh, to be invigorating, inspiring, because he really does point to, to uh, the awesome presence of all things. Because in the quiet of his solitude and the solitude that we all practice from our zazen, and we can really become intimate with that awesome presence of our lives and everything that enters into it. And with the profoundest, deepest respect and love of all of those aspects. So that's... Uh, that's enough for me. With that, I'll turn it over to Keith. And like I said, more on that uh, subject to follow on Thursday and for quite some time to come. All right. Well, thank you, Dean. Um, yeah, I guess... So I, I, the format I went with was kind of an experiment, so I hope it works. Um, I hope you all have uh, good eyes or, or decent-sized screens to look at. So what I did was prepare a PowerPoint uh, slideshow, and I'm going to share the screen with you and go through the uh, Stonehouse's works as well as some, some other poetry. And then I, had, I asked the, the Sangha to send me some poems, and uh, quite a few of you did. Um, so I've included those poems and those uh, poets as well, or Zen masters, whatever you might uh, call them. But I think one thing that uh, Stonehouse and a couple of the other uh, poets I chose, they, uh, they had in common, almost all of them, was, uh, and, and it's poignant to what Dean just said, is a, a social or an intolerance for politics and social injustice. Back then, you know, in uh, medieval Japan, they, most of these guys that are the poets that I've res that resonated with me were all, uh, you know, they, they are, they're all cave dwelling mountain living uh, for the most part, but a lot of them were given lofty to run monasteries or to be the, the training masters in monasteries. And they turned away from these things to be more, to focus on their, their poetry and their Zen practice and, and be more isolated. And in every case, it was mentioned that they chose that path to get away from the, the bullshit and the politics and the monks bickering and fighting over more lofty positions. So and I think that has a lot to do with, uh, uh, you know, finding what truly makes you happy and, and, and uh, is, is relevant today for sure. Um, so how I came across the Mountain Poems of Stonehouse was two years ago uh, at Jokoji. Um, looking through the library there, and I found this very interesting looking book. Um, you know, what struck me at first is I'm a printer. I've been running printing presses since I was 15 years old. And uh, this book came in a dust jacket like this. It's got a, it's a mountain poem to Stonehouse, and it's got a, a young 1980s red pine on the back. But then I noticed right away, this, this book 
It's, it's hand bound. It's on handmade paper. Um, it's even you know, the, the inside, all the sheets are doubled and it's, uh, it's printed on um, uh, letterpress, which is also very uncommon. Um, turns out this, is, uh, that this book was one of a thousand made by Red Pine back in 1986. He was um, translating the poems of Cold Mountain, which was a much more popular uh, set. And in that, set, uh, in that volume that he was translating, there was the works of two other poets, Stonehouse, and he doesn't mention who the third was. But he, so when he finished translating the poems of Cold Mountain, he just kept right on going straight through Stonehouse because he was so captivated with Stonehouse, he couldn't stop. Um, so when I found this book of Jokoji, I carried it around with me. I started reading it, and just the poems really struck with me. I imagine you could pick up any book of poetry during a session and uh, get attached to it. <laughs> uh, so I put it back on the shelf, and then I returned this last October. And I walked over to the bookcase, and there it was again. You know, my first day there, it jumped out at me, so I carried around all week again. Um, and then on the last day, I gave it to Mike and told him he should probably put it in his personal library because of how rare the book is. <clears throat> uh, that specific copy of the, the thousand made. And then I came back uh, from Sesheen and I uh, was explaining to a, a friend of mine at the time, a girl that I was seeing at the time, about this book. And uh, she went and bought it on eBay for me as a gift. So that's how I ended up with one of the thousand. And, uh, yeah, she's no longer around, but the book is. So. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm um, just going to go right into this PowerPoint. Like I said, I, did, I didn't want to just do page after page after page of Stonehouse poems. There's a few others I wanted. I wanted to have it be an open conversation. So please feel free to unmute yourselves um, and comment at any time. I'm not going to be able to see everybody because I'm going to have the screen up. So we'll see how this works. And uh, I think I, I tested it out a little bit uh, with Chris yesterday, and it seemed to work pretty good. So we'll see how it goes. So give me a moment to get this set up and then we'll start. So. So now I've got, I'm, I'm going to be looking at a different screen that shows all my notes that you guys won't see. So just give me a second here to have got like all the Zoom controls, all the PowerPoint controls, and all this stuff at once. So I'm just trying to make it so I can see what I need to see. All right. Okay, so does everybody see the That first slide, we're good with the mountain poems of Stonehouse? Yes, you can see that. Yes. Okay. So I did, in a little bit of the research, I found that Stonehouse was noted as the 56th Zen patriarch. I didn't research that, but uh, uh, that, that could be accurate. I'd only saw that, I've seen that twice, so. Uh, but in a book, it's never referenced. Stonehouse's name came from the name given to a cave on the 
Haisa Mushan Mountain, the mountain on which he lived on two occasions. <clears throat> so, and then I, I have some notes about the book that I already just told you guys. And then this is a, the most flattering picture I could find of Stonehouse. There's not many. So Stonehouse is by, this is his bio slide, which is the most amount of writing. So I have a bio slide for a few of the uh, poets I chose, so you can, you can know their numbers and their history. But Stonehouse was born, he's kind of a, a little after Dogen, so still the 13th century, but toward the end of the 13th century. Uh, and he was born in a family that had, was practicing Confucianism. Confucianism. Um, at the age of 20, he quit his studies and became a novice under Master Young Wei at Xingqiao Chengfu Temple. After three years, he was formally ordained as a monk. Um, uh, at, at three years, he, didn't, he wanted to seek additional teaching, and uh, another monk passed by his room with the uh, with the big straw hat and all the gear for a traveling monk. And he asked him where he was going. And he said he was going to uh, train with a, a renowned master of the time named Cheyenne. So Stonehouse joined him. Um, and then uh, took on Cheyenne as his, his new teacher. Um, they, kind of, they went separate ways and Cheyenne became the abbot of the Tao Ching temple. And Stonehouse eventually came back and joined him. After several years at the Tao Ching Temple, Stonehouse was invited to become the meditation master at the famous Ling Yin Temple, a prestigious post. After a short stay as the meditation master, um, he decided he liked the mountains better, and he, he moved back to, uh, to the mountains and built a small hut at the summit of Hasamushin, I should learn how to pronounce that, mountain, and began his life as a hermit. So it was that time, it was 1312, and he was 40 years old, he enjoyed the seclusion of the mountain for 20 years, and in 1331, the emperor, Emperor Wen, asked Stonehouse to be abbot of a newly rebuilt Fu Yuan temple. When Stonehouse declined, the emperor insisted. So after seven years, in 1338, he pleaded old age and was permitted to return to the mountains. So he settled this time on the mountain's north peak, same mountain, but an opposite peak. It was near the end of his second stay, around 1350, that he compiled his mountain poems. In 1352, the Empress presented Stonehouse with a gold robe of a great Dharma master. In the fall of that same year, he announced he was feeling ill and would be leaving. When his students asked him if he had any parting words, he picked up his writing brush one last time and wrote, Corpses don't stink in the mountains. There's no need to bury them deep. I might not have the fire of Samadhi, but enough wood to end this family line. He then dropped his brush and died at 81. <laughs> <clears throat> Here's kind of one of the, I think, Red Pine, I referred to it as the penultimate of his poems, kind of like at the, at the what spurred him to write down his mountain poems and, and kind of a summary at the end. <clears throat> Here in the woods, I have lots of free time. When I don't spend it sleeping, I enjoy composing poems. But with paper and ink so scarce, I haven't thought about writing them down. Now some Zen monks have asked me what I find of interest on this mountain. 
I have sat here quietly and let my brush fly. Suddenly, this volume is full. I close it and send it back down, the, down with the admonition not to try singing these poems. Only if you sit on them will they do you any good. There's another, uh, so that, yeah, these next few slides are just my, some of my favorite poems from the book. I searched high and low without success. By chance, I found this forested peak. My thatch hut pokes through the clouds and sky. A moss-covered trail cuts through the bamboo. The greedy are worried about favor and shame. I spend my time in the stillness of meditation. Bizarre rocks and gnarled pines remain unknown to those who look for the mind with the mind. <clears throat> so some, uh, uh, I took some notes from Red Pine's commentary. It says that the Chinese have always had a passion for old pine trees and oddly shaped rocks. Well, don't y'all. Um, and in the last line, uh, Stonehouse recalls a Zen monk who sees beyond the mountains, but who has not yet seen behind the emptiness with which he has replaced them. So that'd be the, to those who look for the mind with the mind. <clears throat> this one I thought was kind of a cute one from, he says, uh, don't think the mountain home means you're free. <clears throat> a day doesn't pass without its cares. Old ladies steal my bamboo shoots. Boys lead oxen into the wheat. Grubs and beetles destroy my greens. Boars and squirrels devour the rice. Things don't always go my way. What can I do but turn to myself? <clears throat> this one's, uh, I think that, so that picture, some of you might recognize this photograph of the sunset from the mountains. That's from the ridge up at Jacoji from two years ago. Yep. We took several meals up there. And just first line, uh, as soon as I read this poem, this picture came to mind, so I went and dug it out. Um, so as soon as the red sun bites the mountain, I shut my rickety door. I sleep on a mattress of soft green grass in the curve of a wooden pillow. And when the moon shines through the pines, before clouds return to the stream, clear night dreams go far, but not to the world of men. That's just, that's great. <laughs> I like that. Uh, the next one will be stripped of conditions, my mind is at rest. Emptied of existence, my nature is at peace. How often at night have my windows turned white as the moon and stream pass by my door? So it was Stonehouse when he built his second hut, he, um, he called it Sky Lake. He, he channeled a stream coming out, uh, coming out, bubbling out of the rocks behind his hut to run just past his hut, and then he dug a pond in his front yard, I guess you'd call it, uh, which the stream then filled, and he, he referred to that in many of his poems, Sky Lake. <clears throat> uh, somewhere to when I was reading, they said that a lot of the, the mountain huts, they would put oiled paper over the windows. So a lot of his poems, he makes references to yellow or white, his windows turning yellow or white as the moon passes. Um, a lot of times that's just through, you know, the light of the moon coming through that oiled paper that keeps out the mountain mist of the morning. Uh, so depending on how old the paper is, sometimes it's yellow, sometimes it's white. After 20 years of nights beneath the moon and the clouds, to find myself old is hard. Crows come looking for food at the altar. Monks return with empty begging bowls. Others work the waves for shrimp and clams. 
I swing a hoe in the mountains. When Solomon's seal is gone, there's still pine pollen and one inch free of care. <clears throat> so I guess, you know, I also read in there that Stonehouse preferred not to beg for food. So he would eat. Uh, that's what this picture of the, on the right side of the slide is, is that's a picture of Solomon's um, seal. And then even at the bottom has a nice picture of the root. So that was, he was referring to that. Um, so he would often eat, uh, you know, he would just forage in the mountains for food uh, and did a lot of gardening. He often refers to gardening in a lot of his poems. Uh, the root of Solomon's seal is said to be, it's, or it is, high in starch. It's gathered in early spring. Pine pollen is more bitter and less preferred. Uh, and when he says, in one inch free of care, the one inch of free of care is referring to the mind. A lot of uh, Stonehouse's poems also kind of reject materialism um, and kind of like, he was, he was kind of always hearkening back to keeping things simple and how they used to be, you know, before the modern 13th century that he was in where uh, a little bit of history too is uh, Genghis Khan's grandson was um, charging through China at this time and had destroyed all, a lot of the towns north of the Yangtze River. And when the monks and merchants and all that south of the Yangtze, how much devastation that uh, Khan had created uh, by fighting back or by destroying them when they fought back, uh, everybody on the south side of the river just gave up and, and peacefully surrendered. So then the Khan allowed them all to live. So Stonehouse, you know, the monasteries weren't destroyed and the merchants were allowed to stay open. They were used by the, the new regime to, to ship money and goods and things across China. So it, it, there was a lot of, uh, you can imagine a lot of politics, a lot of money changing hands and things at that time, and Stonehouse didn't really like any part of it. That's what this poem reminds me of. And this picture just was perfect for this poem, so I don't know how that will go with a, a recorded talk. But Jade Hall, Silver Candle, Knights of Song, Gold Valley, Silk Curtain, Homes of the Rich. Can't compare with a hermit's thatched hut where plum blossoms bask in unclouded moonlight. <clears throat> and then this was the last Stonehouse poem I had, um, where he says, uh, letting go means letting everything go. Buddhahood has to go too. Each thought becomes a demon. Each word invites more trouble. Survive instead on what karma brings. Pass your days in freedom. Make the Dharma your practice. Lead your ox to the mill. Um, so again, I thought that was a beautiful kind of uh, what Dean talked to, you know, of uh, earlier or before I started. Um, I think, and Dean, you could chime in. I, well, when I read that in Lead Your Ox to the Mill, I thought Lead Your Ox to the Mill was analogous to the 10 ox herding pictures, obviously, ox herding. Uh, but I thought maybe that, um, you know, the ox herding pictures represent the 10 stages of enlightenment. And perhaps I thought going to the mill meant uh, uh, returning to society to live as a bodhisattva for the benefit of all beings having transcended the oxen self. So the 10th ox herding picture is to return to the marketplace. And I thought maybe that's what he meant by the lead your ox to the mill. Um, unless there's, uh, it could be also um, 
Could also be referring to something else that I'm not, I don't know. So, so at this point, I can't no, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, I, I think uh, that's, that's a good way to take it, but it's, it's one of those lines in the context of that poem that, uh, that you could, uh, uh, it kind of invites just playing with it. Mm. Uh, I think that's a richer experience with it than, than trying to find one okay. right uh, take on it. The fact that it comes right after the line, make the Dharma your practice, which is, is talking about activity. So leading your ox to the mill, the mill is, is pointing to that activity. Uh, and that's, uh, that's, that's kind of what our practice is, is, uh, is going to the mill, uh, to, to see it in that way, to create uh, the sustenance of our lives. Dharma is sustenance. Mm. Yeah, that makes purpose. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's that's the interpretation. Yeah, yeah, I got you. All right. <laughs> no, I mean um, it just that, that's the beauty of poetry is, mm -hmm. is uh, the best poems. Uh, you know, I could probably come back to it in ten minutes and, and go in a t totally different direction. Right. It's just, it, it really is beautiful. I'm glad you chose this one. So that was kind of, so yeah, I, um, I didn't share with Dean that I was going to do all these other poems. So that's kind of where I end with Stonehouse for the most part. Uh, but I really um, I encourage you, if you haven't heard of them or read, or read the book, this is the, the new version of the book is uh, on Amazon and it's, it's really cheap. And, uh, I don't know. It's, I've always seen it for like under 10 bucks and it was re released and red pine went in and actually retranslated um, a lot of the poems. And I even, I even cross referenced like the, some of the ones I posted um, just to see what he had changed. And really a lot of the stuff was just verbiage that didn't really make much difference. Like you said, now Red Pine's 40 years older and he's getting different interpret and he's been doing nothing but translating that whole time. So yeah. he's changed some things to change the feel of poems, but at the same time, it's maybe just different interpretations. And what's real neat about the new book is when he gives you the poems uh, on the one side, he gives you the kanji on this side, but then he gives you um, just his uh, historical facts and, what they were like about the oiled paper on the windows and things like that, that what he, what Stonehouse was referring to and some of those things were some of the things you're like, man, what's it's beautiful and poetic, but what does he mean? Then here Red Pine tells you the new version. Oh yeah. He's just talking about the, uh, you know, the, the paper on the window or something, but it's still, uh, so yeah, it's a great book. Highly encourage it. Uh, the next slide I got is uh, just, Found two poem, two versions of uh, Adachi Chiono's Enlightenment poem, and this poem has always uh, been one of my favorites as well. Uh, Julie might recognize it when when Julie, Cindy, and uh, Anne received their jukai. I include this poems in their card. This poem in their cards. <coughs> 
Uh, so I'll try to go through this relatively quickly. It's, it's just a, it's a compelling story. And this came out like, you know, you know the, the social issues going on in the world at the time. I found this one when the Me Too movement was really big and, and all the Dharma talks and, and all the stuff was all about, you know, women not having their voice um, in, historically in Dharma. And, and, and I heard this poem like two or three times in that, uh, you know, a year or two, two, three years, I don't know what it was, a year or two years ago, a year and a half ago. And uh, so Adachi Chiono was uh, one of the most important women in Zen and definitely in Rinzai. Um, so I'll read her story real quick. So Adachi Chiono was a servant in a Zen convent who wanted to practice Zazen. One day, she approached the elderly nun and said, I'm of humble birth, I can't read or write, and must work all the time. Is there any possibility that I could attain the way of Buddha, even though I have no skills? The nun answered her, this is wonderful, my dear. In Buddhism, there are no distinctions between people. There is only this. Each person must hold fast to the desire to awaken and cultivate a heart of great compassion. People are complete as they are. If you don't fall into delusive thoughts, there is no Buddha and no sentient being. There is only one complete nature. If you want to know your true nature, you need to turn toward the source of your delusive thoughts. This is called Zazen. Chiono said with happiness, with this practice as my companion, I have only to go about my daily life practicing day and night. After months of wholehearted practice, she went out on a full moon night to draw some water from the well. The bottom of her old bucket held together by bamboo strips suddenly gave way and the reflection of the moon vanished with the water. When she saw this, she attained great realization. So here are the, the two, I don't know which one of these I like better, but I found them both a dozen times uh, researching this. So I do, I, I like them, I don't have to choose one, I like them both. So her enlightenment poem was, with this and that, I tried to keep the bucket together and then the bottom fell out. Where water does not collect, the moon does not dwell. Uh, the second translation, in this way and that, I tried to save the old pail. Since the bamboo strip was weakening and about to break, until at last the bottom fell out. No more water in the pail. No more moon in the water. So, yeah. Always liked that one. And uh, so, yeah, in my notes just say Adachi Chiono is considered the most important woman of all Renzai. She was heir to Mugaku Sogin, the founder of Engaku-ji. After her transmission, she established a tensil, a temple known as Keiji, the first Soto monastery for women. Not Soto, S-O-T-O, but S-O-D-O just means a training monastery. Uh, so the first Soto monastery for women in Japan. She's also known as Chiyono. Her enlightenment story was famous. That just gives you a description of the enlightenment story, but uh, we just read all that. So that was neat. Uh, and even there, I then at this point, I started getting some uh, submissions of other people for some poems. And Chuck uh, flooded my inbox. And uh, of course, he went with Lai Po, who's a, a very famous uh, uh, Chinese poet. So a brief bio on, uh, on Lai Po. There's an, well, and then the next poet I talk about is also one of my favorites. But, so Chuck brought me Lai Po, and then he also brought me Ikyu. And we'll talk about Ikyu next. 
And I wasn't going to include ICU because I started to include ICU in my own. And I said, oh, ICU deserves a presentation all of his own. So I, so I shelved that. And then Chuck sent me ICU. So it's your lucky day. ICU is <laughs> just as good as Stonehouse almost. <laughs> or that's not a competition. But in my – anyway, let's talk about Lai Po. So while Europe was shrouded in the Dark Ages, China was at the height of its glory in the Tang Dynasty from 618 to 907. China abounded in the arts at this time, and above all, poetry. The works of over a thousand Tang poets were preserved. Of them, there is no dispute that the greatest figure and one of the greatest poets of all time was Lai Po. <clears throat> An idler and a drunkard, a lover of woods and lakes, mountains, also a lover of good companions and wine shops. Line Po, 701 to 762. So he only lived to be 61. Has been revered for over a thousand years. He lifted Chinese poetry to new heights. His perfection of form has never been surpassed. Um, and then these, these, these two poems were chosen by Chuck, but they're both quite good. So, Quiet night thoughts. Before my bed, there is bright moonlight so that it seems like frost on the ground. Lifting my head, I watch the bright moon. Lowering my head, I dream that I'm home. And, uh, oh, and those, those two paintings uh, in that picture are of, uh, of Lipo. Uh, one of him standing alone outside staring at the moon, and the other of him sleeping over a wine jug. <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, the second poem was the Ching Ting Mountain. Flocks of birds have flown high and away. A solitary drift of cloud, too, has gone wandering on. And I sit alone with the Ching Ting Pink, towering beyond. We never grow tired of each other, the mountain and I. So there's your taste of lipo. So I don't have to read all this, but uh, yeah, Ikkyu is a... Uh, I mean, I could, I could probably blow through it pretty quick. Um, I think I will, because it's a very, it's an entertaining story. Um, so Ikkyu was born in Kyoto to a lady of the court or concubine, I've also heard it said. Um, and she was, dis you know, disgraced the pregnancy and was speculated that she was, the, that he is the son of an emperor. So at the age of five, uh, or she was banished from the, the kingdom or whatever you call it, and Ikkyu was sent to a, a Rinzai monastery in Kyoto. <clears throat> at 13, he entered the larger Keninji temple of Kyoto. At the age of 16, he left Keninji and took up residence at a small temple on Lake Biwa near Kyoto with one other monk named Kino, who was devoted to Zazen practice. When Ikkyu was only 21, Kino died leaving Ikkyu in despair. So yeah, Kino was like his first real teacher he respected. He left the, the larger monastery because like Stonehouse, um, he, he didn't like the politics and uh, the BS. And another, an important thing about Ikkyu is he's got like different eras of poetry where his early stuff is full of angst and kind of angry and, and pretty angry. It's a lot, uh, not angry. It's full of, uh, um, kind of disillusionment with the uh, the politics and uh, the hypocritical nature of a lot of the monks at the monastery he was first at. And, um, then he uh, 
he goes out and writes a lot of, of really great poetry and is like drinking wandering years. And then he falls in love uh, that I'll get to with Maury is a much young, a very young blind girl that he falls in love with when he's about 60 and has then, then his poetry turns to almost strictly love poems to Maury that are very, very uh, graphic in nature. And I have not included any of those. <laughs> he's really known for his erotic Zen poetry, which is, Probably the only guy who wrote it. So, if you want to look that up, there's plenty of it out there. Um, that's also stated. So, when Ikkyu was only 21, Kino, whose beloved master, died, leaving Ikkyu in despair. And then the story goes that he rode out into the, um, Lake Biwa and jumped out in an attempt to drown, to drown himself. And I believe it was his sister or a close friend that rode out and saved him, talked him into coming back in. Um, so then he found another teacher named Kaso, who, like you know, preferred simple aesthetic living and rigorous practice and cone contemplation uh, to the politics of Kyoto. So according to legend, Ikkyo often took a, uh, took a boat out to Lake Biwa to meditate through the night. And one night, the calling of a crow triggered a great awakening experience. Kaso confirmed Ikkyo's realization and made him a lineage holder. If you stayed with Kaso until the older teacher died, he then lived as a wandering monk for 30 years. So that must have been, you know, he must have been around 30 then. Then since about the age of 60, he finally settled down. He managed to attract disciples in spite of himself. They built him a hermitage next to an old temple he had restored. He settled down up to a point in his old age. He enjoyed an open and passionate relationship with a blind singer named singer named Mori to whom he dedicated many erotic poems about the wonders she had performed to revive his jade stalk. In his final years, the lifelong rebel and iconoclast was given the ultimate establishment job. He was named abbot of Daitokuji, but he preferred to live in his hermitage where he died at the age of 87. So that's his whole thing. Yeah, uh, this book that's pictured up middle of crow with no mouth, it's really small on my screen. It was, uh, I think, Stephen Berg, who compiled, so Icky wrote a lot of the two-line stanzas, and he compiled all of them and put them in order, or not in order, put them one after another through, uh, and made that book called A Crow with No Mouth. But his poetry, so now it's, now that's over. The fun part is his poetry is really good. So here's two, two that Chuck sent me. <clears throat> and, uh, I think, Dean, I'm safe to say that he's referring to Bodhidharma <laughs> in the first oh. line. <laughs> but he's... Yeah, yeah. Ika. <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't wait for the man standing in the snow. Yeah, I can't think of the, the general's name that came to ask. The, Ika. Ika, that's H-U-I-K-E. Yeah. So the poem starts out, you know, yeah, making reference towards Ika, who went to Bodhidharma and asked to be a student. Bodhidharma left him standing there till the snow piled up to his knees, and then Ika went off, and he came back missing or cut off his arm. Some of the stories say, and I've heard other translations where they say he went off and came was came back to prove himself, and his arm was gone. He told Bodhidharma he cut it off. He actually might have lost it in battle because he was a soldier or something. So, for different renditions, but. Uh, the most popular one is that he pulled out his sword and cut his arm off to show Bodhidharma just how uh, badly he wanted the Dharma. And, uh, and then Bodhidharma accepted him. That's why he's the third Zen patriarch, Bodhidharma the second, or Bodhidharma the first. 
Yeah, that's pretty punk rock, man. <laughs> so it starts, uh, don't wait for the man standing in the snow to cut off his arm. Help him now. Some monks live in caves, build huts on snowy mountains. Right now, clouds flee across the moon, my heart. We are lost, born in delusion deeper than any mind. If you could escape awakening, you'd ripen like a pear all by itself. Three-foot axe leans on the headsman's, headsman's block, cuts through deep feelings April. The other one, uh, the next one definitely refers to uh, his disdain for, you know, the politics and uh, um, materialism. All the old masters want is money and fame. Strike like a feather, but when? They screw inside the temple, call in students for mysterious satori. Only I teach like the seasons. Six Zen from the famous three, you know who I mean. I can change your life with a mere look. They use sticks and yells and other tricks, those fakes. Ikyu teach, Ikyu reaches high, low, like sunlight. So there he's kind of thumbing his nose at the, uh, at the teachers. The, the, the one thing I never researched is I, <laughs> is he says it and I go, huh, I'm not sure what he's talking about. Six Zen from the famous three, you know who I mean? Does it mean uh, Bodhidharma, Dogen, and the Buddha? The Buddha, or could it be three contemporaries? I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Who I'm, not, I'm not sure. <laughs> so I might look a little further at that just because he says, you know who I mean. Well, actually, no, no, no. Now here's the, the Ikyu uh, poems I chose since, since Chuck forced me to. I had to do it. Um, that stone Buddha deserves all the bird shit it gets. I wave my skinny arms like a tall flower in the wind. And I just, I don't know what I like about that one. Just kind of, just kind of encapsulates Icky to me. He's kind of a smart ass, kind of funny, and I can just see him <laughs> waving his skinny arms. Studying texts. And stiff meditation can make you lose your original mind. A solitary tune by a fisherman, though, can be an invaluable treasure. Dusk rain on the river, the moon peeking in and out of clouds. Elegant beyond words, he chants his song night after night. Um, and this next one really uh, struck me. I think you had a tumultuous uh, relationship with his father growing up. And they uh, they uh, got back together and um, and became friendly or whatever amicable uh, prior to his father's death. But I've, I had a very very uh, similar uh, relationship with my father, who died shortly after we got back uh, together. Hearing a crow with no mouth cry in the deep darkness of the night, I feel a longing for my father before he was born. That's pretty good. Uh, these last two, like vanishing dew, a passion, a passing apparition, or the sudden flash of lightning, already gone. Thus should one regard one's life. And the last one was, uh, look at the cherry blossoms. Their color and scent fall with them, are gone forever, 
yet mindless as spring comes again. So that's it, Evicu. I encourage everybody to look him up. Um, no, this is another one that um, Chuck had sent in. And I don't even, I'm not sure how to pronounce the name. Sagyo Hoshi. Uh, his numbers are 1118. It's March 23rd, 1190. He's a famous Japanese poet of the late Heian and early Kamakura period. So I think, you know, he, Chuck had sent me some pictures of, out of a book. It looked like this was a, a, a page, the top it said autumn, and then it had these three poems that were, to me, I think belong together. All kind of representing autumn, maybe. So, uh, pompous grass thick on the path with blooms of pompous grass for markers, I pushed my way along. No trace of the trail I vaguely remembered. That one, uh, <laughs> the whole time I was typing that, I, was, I used to remember when I was a kid, we lived in Florida and I was in like third grade. And my mom would always, and we had, a, we had these two big things of pompous grass uh, around the side of our house. And I used to, have like a fork because big billowing pompous grass. And uh, my mom would always be like, careful out there, don't scratch your ass on the pompous grass. No, I still remember that. <laughs> oh, how many drops of dew we will spill from leaves of grass. Fall winds are rising on my uh, Gino plain. And it, <clears throat> even in a person most times indifferent to things around him, they waken feelings the first winds of autumn. That's true, huh? How many times you go out and beginning of fall just never realize that fall is kind of here or about to be here and you get that breeze and the smell of the fall. Yup, wakens feelings. <laughs> so this, the next slide is, we don't have to read, but Chris submitted a, kind of our Sangha poem and one he's given a, uh, a teaching on and is also one of my favorites. Uh, probably might be a little too long to read, uh, but we all know the Song of the Grass Roof Hermitage or Song of the Grass Hut. And Chris, you want to say anything about it? Or, you know, or, do we, or we can read it. I'm fine with with reading it. If you remember, or it's probably yeah, I mean. I, I would just say that, um, you know, um, I, I read it or say it, recite it every day. And, um, you know, Ben Conley had that awesome book on it. And there's just so many lines that, you know, just bring me back to daily practice. And uh, you know, it's just a beautifully written poem. And uh, we're fortunate just to have a lot of um, knowledge about it that's kind of floating around out there right now. So that's... Uh, well worth, uh, well worth reading and reciting. Yeah. So, and um, also, it's 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 kind of crazy that yeah, you know, it was written by Shitao, um, known as Seiko Kaizen in Japanese, but um, he was Huanang's successor, and he's written, like I said, right there, two of the most famous Zen poems, the Sandokai and Sano Grass Roof Hermitage. They're both great uh, poems that are both included in our chant books. So, yeah, felt like we had to put it in there. I almost, too, my favorite poem of all probably is uh, Verses on the Faith Mind. And I could, definitely couldn't get that in here. 
<laughs> That's many, many pages. So then Gene, thank you, submitted a few poems here. <clears throat> and um, I had to look up, I'll explain. I don't think these are the right type of rocks. Uh, there's a thing called a kern that's referenced in this poem. And a kern is a mound of rough stones built as a memorial or landmark, typically on a hilltop or a skyline. So these are more, I just love this picture of these little Zen stacks on the moss. So I use that even though um, I think if you think of like that, you see those rock piles in Tibet and stuff on mountaintops or, or yeah, almost like stupas, I think are more like what they're referred to as a kern. And it's the C-A-I-R-N. So it's pronounced as K-E-R-N, like a kern. So we'll read that. It's called Your Way. No one has piled stones to show you the way. Out in the unknown, out in the blue. This is your way. Only you shall walk it. There is no return. And you too. You don't pile stones to build a kern. And the wind obliterates your track in bleak mountains. And that was by an Olav Haig. Um, and in the Thomas Mann, a uh, beautiful one-liner there was, immerse yourself in the great riddle of this dream of life here on earth. And that picture is probably small, especially if you're on your phones, but it's just a picture of the earth at night from space. This one as well. I thought this picture just looks like dawn. <laughs> the breezes at dawn have secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. That's from Rumi. So Jean, did you want any commentary on what you chose? Um, sure. You know, your way, I just think, um, echoes Buddhism from the perspective that the Buddha always said, you know, rely on your own experience. You know, even if it's something that I've said, don't just take it for granted, test it and make sure that it's true in your own experience as well. And so I think the nature of this poem is to say, you know, your way is Buddha nature, and we are we are called in practice to discover our own way. Um, and the the kerns are they are markers in the mountains for hikers. So you know, up in the Sierra Nevada, for example, um, when you get into places where it's just rock, it could be like large slabs of granite, or it could be boulder-sized rocks that you're climbing over. There's no way to know where the trail is. And so people will leave these kerns. They just build them up three to five stones so that you can kind of see where to go. And hmm. so in this poem, they're saying basically, you know, you don't do the same thing for the person that's following you. You let them discover the, the path on their own as well. Oh, okay. And the Thomas Mann uh, line, I just think, you know, he says, immerse yourself in this great riddle. And I think of the riddle as a koan. And the koan is the dream of life here on earth. And, and so we're all kind of caught in this dream, this dream world, because we believe as sensate beings in our senses and in our interpretations, our perceptions, 
of what's happening, but that he's inviting us to play with that concept and to um, perhaps not necessarily subscribe to the dream that we are creating in our own minds. So I like that from a koan perspective. And the Rumi, I just think, uh, I love that it draws on nature and um, it speaks about birth and death. You know, people, at least that's, that's how I tend to interpret the line about people coming back and forth across the dorsal where the two worlds touch. Um, that, that there is this coming and going, this idea of no birth, no death. And um, don't go back to sleep is this, this mantra. And it's with an exclamation point, which is unusual for Rumi. Um, and he's, in essence, begging us to awaken to these um, signals, the breezes at dawn, you know, asking for what we, what we really want, deep understanding that uh, enlightenment even, you know, to, to find this. And then as a bodhisattva, to not take it and run with it, but to stay awake, to be awake in our um, realizations. So I think they all have a, a sort of Buddhist tone to them, even though none of them are, are Buddhists. So that's why I picked them. Thank you. So the, um, the final slide um, submitted by Shinman. So we all know, or uh, you know, um, Kosho Uchiyama. Um, of course, he's the author of Opening the Hand of Thought, which is in my top two books. <laughs> Just, I don't know. So I really hold a special place for that book, and Uchiyama. Um, and um, so this poem was completed by Uchiyama on his last day of life. I never saw it referred to as his death poem, but uh, if you finish it on his last day of life, it's, uh, I guess you could still call it that, much like the one I read of Stonehouse. Uh, so... We'll kind of end it with this one. Um, it's called Just Bow. Putting my right and left hands together as one, I just bow. Just bow to become one with Buddha and God. Just bow to become one with everything I encounter. Just bow to become one with all the myriad things. Just bow as life becomes life. Mm. That is it. Uh, Keith? <laughs> yes. Are you able to share these slides with us? Yeah. Uh, so I can do one thing right now. If you're on, yes. I, in uh, many different ways. So I can share. Okay. Yeah. I can share. That would right be great. Now. I printed it out as a PDF. Mm -hmm. And, um, oh, if you just send it as a PDF, I can print it. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I plan, um, 
So I just sent it in the chat. So if you're on a computer right now, anybody, you can just go to the chat and right click and download the PDF I just sent you. Otherwise, I'll, I can send it out an email. And uh, I just, um, I didn't, I don't have copyright permission for any of the photographs I use other than the one I took at Chikoji. So, yeah. you know, it's just for us. Uh, <laughs> you got, obviously, if anybody wants to, uh, you know, just, just don't post it on Facebook or anything for that. Just no. respect the people who took all those beautiful photographs, I guess. I don't know why they would care if I attached it to a beautiful poem, but they might. Hey, Keith, I'm not seeing it in the chat. Maybe something's wrong. I don't know. Maybe you can post it. Uh, to, yeah. Is it not going to chat? Does anybody see it? I see it. It's just uh, as a PDF file, which you have yeah. to download then. Which yeah. That's I'm it. in the process of doing. <laughs> well, there you go, Cynthia. You got one at home already. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you, dear. <laughs> I'm on my phone. He's on the computer. Yeah. Okay. I guess I, so. I mean, that's all I got. If anybody has any, if anybody has a poem they'd like to share right now, they could, or we can. I'm cool with wrapping up early, or if I could leave this on if anybody's downloading that until they're done. Or... Well, Keith, um, I just wanted to say uh, how much I appreciated um, your Dharma talk, your presentation. Um, you know, uh, I'm really blown away by the depth um, of your inquiry there and your choices. Um, I, I very much appreciated what you did, and I got a lot out of it as well. Um, and I was especially moved by that last poem by Ujiyama, his final poem. That was just incredible. Mm -hmm. So uh, thank you so much for what you did today. It was really, really wonderful. Uh, oh, thank you. Did, uh, I guess I would like that feedback. Thank you, Chris. Um, how did the PowerPoint work over Zoom? I just, just figured it might be a cool platform and give me something to look at other than my ugly mug during my talk. That's kind of my whole that was what I really thought of. Like, I don't want anybody staring at me the whole time. <laughs> no, it, was, it was very good. It was very good. good. Yeah, it's on your phone was. even. Oh, good, good. Okay. Very good. And I Keith, I, I find it interesting when I was looking at when you were doing the, uh, uh, when you were uh, going through it, the one poem that you put up by uh, Stonehouse, Ironically, I had bookmarked in my copy here, the script of conditions, my mind is at rest one. And oh, I opened yeah. and I was just like, wow, that's cool. That's a strange coincidence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is. So just, just yeah. And then everything that you selected is stuff that I, you know, remember from, because you know, I have books on BQ as well, you know, so, and you know, really into him as well. Keith, thank you very much for everything that you showed. Um, I especially, I'm amazed because I'm not, it's all new to me. Oh. I love poetry, but I have never seen any of these. And uh, it was a delight. It was really a delight. All and Gene, right. um, thanks for your explanation of your poems as well. Mm -hmm. But um, I love the whole PowerPoint. I thought it worked really well. Okay. Yeah, it did. It did very good. I just wanted to say, um, I, I love that image of the plum blossom with the moonlight. 
And, um, it, it reminds me of, you know, the, the Japanese have um, all of these seasons where they view things. And so there's the, like, the, of course, the cherry blossom viewing, there's moon viewing, and there's the first leaves that come out viewing. And then the first one of the season is the plum blossom viewing mm -hmm. because the plum blossoms come out when there's still snow on the ground. So it's kind of a, a miraculous moment when you see a plum blossom because it's a sign that spring is coming, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a miracle. Yeah, maybe kind of like our crocuses uh, where they pop up and there's still snow on the ground sometimes. So the plum blossom always reminds me of that like uh, moment, uh, it snaps you into a different reality. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I found when I, because I read that about the, you know, and that was Stone Stonehouse's poem about, um, you know, the silver palaces and jade halls can't compare with the uh, unclouded moonlight on a cherry blossom. I thought I saw that picture. I was just like, oh my god, it's just perfect. <laughs> Thanks. Keith, I'd like to thank you. Um, I got exposure to a couple of new um, poets through this that I didn't have uh, any experience with before. And um, you did a great job reading them. So, you know, reading poetry is not the easiest thing, but you did a uh, nice job with that. And oh, thank you. I appreciate all the effort that went into the PowerPoint. So it was sort of nice to see the um, examples, you know, of the poetry uh, illustrated in that way. So thank you very much for all your hard work. Thank you. All right, let me, uh, me. Well, before you put that uh, oh. closing chance screen up, I, uh, I'd just like to, uh, uh, close by saying, you know, this was entirely Keith's idea to, to do this. Uh, and I echo everybody's comments about what, how wonderful, you know, it was to, to have this for our Sunday morning uh, uh, Dharma presentation. So just want to make sure everybody's aware of the fact that, uh, that uh, it's an open platform here. So uh, we've got a very rich, Sangha with with so many talents. Uh, Brannigan presented to us this past Thursday. We've got uh, six different teachers who are going to be doing the Sashin talks. So please, if you have something you would like to share with us uh, at any point, uh, just let me know and uh, we can get you in the schedule, uh, whatever you want to get in there. Because uh, the more uh, uh, involvement we can have from this rich song, I think the better for all of us. Uh, and I, I say this not just from a selfish interest, because it gives me the day off, <laughs> but more <laughs> importantly, you know, for the person who is presenting, it's a great experience, and it's a great experience for all of us, because we all have so much to share. So please, uh, if, if you have something uh, that you'd like to follow in Keith's footsteps with and, uh, and share with us, uh, please 
please step forward and do so. We'd all enjoy it very much, I know. May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the, with true, the true merit of Buddha's way. Things are numberless. I vow to save them. Illusions are impossible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. <laughs> 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 <laughs>